Hello and thank you for tuning in to the Salmon Trout Steelheader Podcast. I am here at the Portland Sportsman Show 2020 with Brandon Glass, and I'm happy to have you here today, Brandon. Hey, thank you, and uh, thanks for coming out of the 45th Pacific North of Sportsman Show here. And we're here down here talking about, uh, you know, especially myself, I'm talking about Garmin Electronics and how-tos, how to get them set up and getting yourself comfortable and uh, having that confidence every day you go out and use your vessel to mark fish and uh, or, and or find snags and trouble areas. How did you get into your first boat? Uh, back in 88, 89, the, the Northern Pike Middle Program came out through Bonneville Power Administration, and uh, I was born and raised on the banks of the Sandy River. Well, we had access also to a floating house in the Columbia. So during the summertime, uh, I'd be out in that floating house with my grandparents that would stay there with me, and I could catch these pike minnows. And I saved up all my money until I was, uh, until I was 10 years old, and I was able to buy my first boat with the $1,000 I had saved up uh, is a little 14 foot by 48 inch wide John boat, brand new right out of Stevens Marine. And that was my first boat. So from then on, we put a little motor on it, put some electronics on it, and I was off to the races and fished every day in the Sandy and the Columbia that I could, missing school, catching springers. It was great. Wow. So you're talking each individual pike minnow you caught, you brought back, got a how much how much were you getting paid for them? so back then that back when it first started it was two dollars a fish then the next year it was enough participation so it went to three dollars a fish so about 1990 these were uh, three dollars per fish there was weekly uh, derbies during each pace uh, each check-in station they'd have like weekly biggest pike minnow or they'd have a tagged fish that started in the mid 90s and there was a lot of cool things that kind of got the interest of the public to come out there and and, 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 tr- and you know try to catch these things and get vouchers that you send into Bonneville Power Administration they send you back a check I mean how cool is that to be fishing and making a little extra money pay for your gas pay for some rods and you know I mean it's a great great thing and especially great for kids um, if you can get you know the kids out on the water I just was very fortunate because we had a backyard I could have the boat at the dock or we had the floating boathouse so I could keep the boat at the boathouse it's just a very in- different deal for me, but still, I think there's an opportunity for some kids with grandparents or fathers or mothers that could get them out there to to go out and, and, and actually effectively maybe make a couple bucks. Yeah, that's incredible, and to have your first boat at 10 just because of that, earning it yourself, that's quite the opportunity. <laughs> it was really cool to have that, big, that first boat. I was able to turn at 15 years old and get my first jet sled, so I got a 16-foot aluminum flat bottom with a 90 jet, and from then on... I never looked back. Wow. Now, speaking of uh, jet sleds, I, I did have the opportunity to fish with you a couple years back out of your jet sled on, uh, on not a small river, but a relatively small for, you know, a jet sled. And you, uh, you get that sled around that river uh, with ease. And one thing that I've kind of wondered about is, in your opinion, using your electronics and just your fishing anecdotal evidence, how much do you think a jet sled spooks fish on a small river? Well, that's a good question, and that's going to be dependent on, of course, water levels and water clarities. So anything from the turbidity or the height of the river is going to dictate when I'm going to run a sled or if I'm going to take a drift boat that day. Uh, with the rivers up a little bit, you got turbid waters where you only got three foot of vis or less. Those fish aren't spooked very much by the, by the sled itself. Now, driving over the top of the hole with fish on it, yeah, that's going to spook them. But if you come up along the edges, cast out to where the fish are going to be laying, you're not there spooking them. And then the other way is that the water's low. We haven't had a bunch of rain, and it's gin clear. you got 10 foot of viz. Absolutely, you know, taking, taking that sled, making sure you're extremely agile coming up to these runs, 
you've got to be yeah, pay attention. So a lot of those days I'll just run the drift boat because I love a drift boat, but I know that if the river, let's say the local river that I fish on, if it's at 5,000 CFS or greater, it's just pretty fast for a drift boat. So I want to be able to go up there and run back up and hit these slots again and again and again versus getting a fish move, moving past the slot and can't get back up because the water's too fast. So for what I do is I, I kind of have the, uh, the best of both worlds. I just kind of wait for the water conditions and if the water gets low, we go in the drift boat. For sure. So now let, let's talk maybe, uh, say, fall, low water, high vis, maybe tr- uh, tide water or mm-hmm. lower uh, section of a river. If you know some, some Chinook, say some fresh Chinook, some nice-looking Chinook are in a hole, and you know they're there, and uh, but they've been fished over a little bit. Maybe you rolled in and you didn't get them right away on your first couple casts. Are you going to spend a lot of time on them, or are you going to move? You're going to try to try a couple different things, or are you going to move around and come back to them? You know, a lot of that's going to come to is how many days I've been there straight. If I've been there multiple days straight and I know what the fish are doing, I know how they're flushing around, then yeah, I will make multiple casts, change up my gear a little bit, change cup colors, change some scent to you know maybe make one of these fish change their mind and grab it but if i'm in somewhere new and i've never fished before make a couple casts i feel like we we covered it if there was a good biter he would have bit right away then i move on so that's gonna be kind of dependent on what tributary you're looking at and the circumstances you have at hand because some circumstances may warrant you staying a while or nope move on we're covering ground we're looking for that big wad of fish for sure now when it comes to steelhead, how do you feel about um, maybe coming back to a run? Do you have confidence in, in a run that maybe you fished two hours ago? Would you have confidence to come back two hours later and fish it, or are you more likely to seek out other areas? So here's the best thing about a steelhead, uh, Lucas, is that you can make 10 casts in a row in one spot and not move, and the 11th cast you catch one. What makes that change? What makes that fish for that moment the 11th cast, the one that they want to bite? Mm-hmm. Was it a pressure change? Was it a water change? Is the water warming? Is the water cooling? Did you have some boats run by that maybe it spooked them a little bit? You know, did you spook them on accident in your vessel, being drift boat or power boat, mm-hmm. raft? I mean, I look at every single drift, even though I fished it five times already, that sixth time we may get a double. And I've seen it just just two days ago wow. we made three drifts in this spot i'm like gosh guys we never got really the right cast i know they're there sure as heck next drift we hook one up and uh i had some buddies in the boat so i let him fight the fish and i kept my rod out there and sure as heck boom i hooked another one so we had a double going and i already made three drifts to the spot so i never look at a spot and just say oh screw it they're not there i'm, I'm gonna move on there might be there they're just not ready to turn yet absolutely so that's the beauty of steelhead i mean you can literally have 10 boats go atop them and that and then then your 11th boat and your first cast you catch one <laughs> so so in in say kind of like an average um a median flow or whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it would you how much would you count on steelhead moving throughout the day oh absolutely all the time and then it depends on water temp too if the water temp's cooling you'll actually notice that the steelhead will back back down river towards the lower in the rivers so keep that in mind is that Let's say you're going from a 45 degree average days and you're going down to 32 degree days. These fish in these upper reaches, that water as it's cooling down quicker, they start backing down the tributaries. They might go as many as 10 miles to get to warmer, sandier, uh, smaller cobble of rock. Because the further you up the reach, the bigger the cobble gets and the denser it is, so the colder it stays. The smaller the stuff, the faster it'll warm. Those fish know that, and they'll come back down there to get that warmer water. So I see it almost daily 
uh, if I'm having uh, you know big temperature changes. So, and that's huge information right there because too commonly it's thought of as a fish run or migration just straight up river. And as Brandon's saying here, steelhead move up and down consistently. Um, throughout the river depending on these conditions so brandon uh just one last question for you and i appreciate your info and insight today if uh if you had three steelhead colors and this has nothing to do with if it's a bead a jig worm plug anything like that i'm just talking colors if you had three steelhead colors to choose from for the rest of your life what would those be <laughs> that's a good one um i'd have to say five <laughs> but okay, uh, five. <laughs> uh you gotta go pink you know i'm sorry that pink is probably your number one number two is going to be orange number three is going to be red and then my fourth and fifth are going to be my mix of like let's say uh, an orange and a and a pink and then off water colors orange and sartreuse you gotta have that orange and sartreuse at your will when that watercolor changes a little bit. I've not, I've seen so many times, countless years after another, that as soon as I change up my color, I see the water changing. It's getting turbid. Where you're going from a four or five foot viz to a three foot viz, I put on that orange and sartreuse, and man, boom, it pops. They can see it. And they grab it. It is. It works. So. so Five colors of what I say. There you go. Brandon, I appreciate, once again, you being on the podcast here and hope you have a wonderful uh, seminar schedule here. Yep, absolutely, guys. Thanks a lot. And thanks to Lucas.